All right, good morning. Man, just when I thought the weather was going to call attendance, we have high attendance Sunday. So we're going to be talking about tithing today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> just want to give Jeremy a scare. Uh, we're actually going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. If you're new to Redeemer, we've been going through 1 John for a few months now. And we've learned one of the main reasons why he wrote this letter is to give the early church assurance of their salvation. He wanted the church to know where they stood in relation to God. Because at that time, false teachers were coming in and they were teaching doctrines that were contrary to the gospel. And mainly these teachings surrounded Christ. They had to do with Jesus. So on one hand, you had a group of former Jews that were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully God. And on the other, you had a group of men called Gnostics who were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully man. And now these false teachers were actually more than likely a part of the church who were swayed by these teachings. And so if you think about it, the real difficulty for these churches are that these false teachers knew the terminology, they knew the right words to say to make their message sound as close as possible to the gospel. And on top of that, they were saying that they had the Spirit of God and that God had revealed this to them. And so we see these early churches were struggling with the infiltration of these false teachers, uh, and it was causing them to waver in their faith. And so that's why we see John writes this letter, like he says in chapter 5, so that they may know they have eternal life. And we've also seen, as we've been through 1 John, that John gives us three tests to uh, assure his readers of their salvation. The, he gives us the social test. Do you love God? Do you love people? He gives us the moral test. Do you obey God's commandments? And he gives us the doctrinal test. Are you thinking right thoughts about God? And it's really no coincidence that these three tests mirror the greatest commandment that Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37. You should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Because the social test, it deals with the heart. The moral test, it deals with the soul. And the doctrinal test, it deals with the mind. And so when John's running through these tests, what he's really asking them and what he's asking us is, are you following the greatest commandment? And these tests are meant to give assurance to all believers because if we're really honest with ourselves, we all need assurance. Back when Eden and I were newlyweds, I was a lot more foolish than I am now. And I remember getting annoyed with her because she would always tell me that she loved me and she would want me to reciprocate. And so whether she's getting off the phone or going out or going to the next room to watch TV, she would say, bye, I love you. And she'd want me to say it. And so, me and my infinite wisdom, I tell her, look, I love you. Let's just assume that I love you. And if anything changes, I'll let you know. So the good news is that I had cat-like reflexes to dodge the shoes that she was throwing at me. The bad news is that I was really missing the point that she needed assurance of my love for her. She needed to know where she stood in relation to me and we're that way with the people that we love. And it's no different when it comes to God. And so John gives us these tests, these assurances, to know where we stand in relation to God. 
because we've also seen that he says there's really two groups of people in this world. Those who are children of God and those who are enemies of God. Your identity is either in Christ or it is in Satan. There's no third party who's kind of cool with God. It's one or the other. And when I use the word identity, I don't just mean who you are. I mean it in the sense of who you are in relation to God. Because if you think of what naturally goes into your identity, me, for example, I'm a father, a husband, a son, an advisor, a UGA fan, etc. When you think of what all goes into your identity, what John is getting to is the foundation of all of that. Because whether you're a child of God or an enemy of God, that affects every other aspect of your identity. And so if your identity is in Christ, then you're a child of God, and your identity is being molded and shaped by the gospel. But if your identity is in Satan, then you're an enemy of God, and your identity is being molded and shaped by the world. And we've also seen in 1 John that Satan is out to undermine and to cause you to doubt your identity in Christ. And that's why we need these assurances, is so that we can know who our identity is in. So as we dive into the passage today, I'm going to unpack three points about our identity in Christ. And because Paul threw down the gauntlet, I'm going to answer the call. Because mine all start with the same letter. First... Our identity in Christ is established by the Spirit. Second point is that our identity in Christ emboldens us before our Father. And the third point is that our identity in Christ is evidenced by our love for people. So let's get to the passage and we'll dive in. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love and abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let's look at the first point. Our identity in Christ is established by the Spirit. John starts out in verse 13, stating that we know that we abide in him because he has given us of his Spirit. But before we really unpack this, I want to take a quick look at a few facts that Scripture gives us about the Holy Spirit so we can better understand what John's saying. We see in Acts chapter 5, Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's telling them that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that he's died for our sins. 
And he goes on to finish it with, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we see that the Spirit testifies to the truth. Over in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so we see that the gospel, I mean, sorry, we see that the Spirit enables us to believe the gospel because it is, the Spirit is causing us to be reborn. The scripture also says that uh, the Holy Spirit is a teacher and a helper. Back in John chapter 14, Verse 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And lastly, we're going to see that Scripture says that the Spirit dwells in us, or if you're J-Buck, dwells in us. Uh, <laughs> Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. Now, there's a lot of other passages uh, that talk about the Spirit, but from what we've seen in this little cross-section, we can summarize, summarize it this way. One, the Spirit causes us to believe in the gospel. Two, he continues to teach and help us believe right things about God. And three, he lives inside every follower of Christ. So as we get back to the text in 1 John, How do we see the Holy Spirit establish our identity in Christ? He does it in two ways, in truth and in love. In verse 13, John says, we know God God abides in us because we have his spirit. He's saying we literally have God living in us. And not only does the spirit help us to know that, but he also causes us to know the truth of the gospel when we hear it and when we speak it. Over in, in verse 15, John says, whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God abides in God. And so John is pointing us back to the doctrinal test, that right thinking about God. The Holy Spirit establishes our identity through truth by causing us to know to believe and believe that the gospel is true. So whenever you came to the realization that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, and you realized that he died for your sins so you might live, what we know now is that it is God's spirit that is opening your eyes to that reality. And the other way the spirit establishes our identity in Christ is through love. Verse 16 says that we come to know the love that God has for us. John, saying, John says God is love. And we also know that the spirit is God dwelling in us. So it follows then that we abide in love because God is love. The Spirit makes God's love known to us because it is God's love dwelling in us. And without the Spirit, we could not love God or others. So when we see that the Holy Spirit establishes our identity in Christ, it means that he gives us eyes to see spiritual things, that he opens our eyes to the way the world truly is around us. Uh, The only way I can liken that to is being told things, facts, like about parenting, and then actually becoming a parent. 
It's like once you experience the truth, your eyes are open to the reality of that. So before I had kids, it's like, man, I'm an awesome parent. Like, my kids are going to mind me. I'm going to tell them when to go to bed, and they're going to do what I say. (laughs) Now I'm a parent, and I see the reality before me. (laughs) That's not the case. So in the same way, the Spirit opens our eyes to the way the world truly is and the way that we really are. He makes us aware of our sin and of our need to repent from it. He enables us to love one another. Like we saw last week, he gives us discernment and wisdom to test and see what is true. And he affirms the gospel in our hearts to help us understand scripture. And all of that are great and wonderful things if we actually listen to the Spirit. Because the reality is is we don't always listen to what he has to say. And when we stop listening to the Holy Spirit and start leaning on our own understanding, that is when our thoughts about God and ourselves start going haywire. You know, the way this can kind of unfold is that we can start thinking a little more highly of ourselves. You know, like, man, I've been killing it lately. You know, God's pretty happy that I'm on his team. Uh, You might be thinking, I don't have any really big sins in my life, so I'm doing pretty good. Or, you know, God, I've got life kind of figured out, so if things get really crazy, then I'll holler at you. Or in the other vein, you might start thinking less highly of God. You know, is he really that good? I mean, does he really care for me? Or is this really a sin and not just a cultural difference? And so when these false teachings and thoughts start entering and affecting our mind, we can be sure that it's because we're no longer listening to the Spirit or depending upon Him. And look, there's always going to be times when this happens. I mean, there's obviously John wrote this letter because that's happening. It's going to happen to us today. And when I say false teachings, I mean these constant barrage of messages that the world throws at us on a daily basis. And this is found in radio and social media, movies, conversations with other people, pretty much any Disney movie ever made. Uh, I'm not knocking Disney movies, just you got to know. Don't follow your heart. I mean, come on. Uh, It's literally everywhere that you turn. And so that's why we have to be on guard against false teachings. And the only way that we can do that is through filtering all these messages through Scripture and by a constant dependence on the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's move on to the second point. Our identity in Christ emboldens us before the Father. I'm going back to verses 17 and 18. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence before the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So John makes the claim that love is perfected in us. And what does he mean by this? Remember a few weeks ago, Jeremy was talking about the differences between love and hate. He said that hate is the start of the process that says, I want you to die. And we see that evidence in Cain and Abel. But love, on the other hand, seeks out the good for another. It says, I want you to live. And back in verse 9 of chapter 4, we saw last week, 
uh, God manifested his love for us by sending Jesus into the world so that we might live. It's the ultimate display of his love for us. And that is why John is saying love has been perfected in us because now the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and we have spiritual life. And this perfect love gives us confidence on the day of judgment because we know that we will stand before God on that day and not have shame or fear. And we look forward to that day because we know we will be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And so not only are we confident on judgment day, but every day, because if you look at verse 17, John says, talking about Jesus, as he is, so also are we in this world. And to me, this is probably one of the most stunning scriptures of, of the entire Bible. I mean, it should knock your spiritual socks off, maybe even your physical socks. Because what John is really saying is that God views us the same way that he views Jesus. Meaning that in spite of all the evil that you've done in your life, all the sin that you commit now and in the future, if you are saved by Christ, God looks on you with joy. Not anger, not disappointment, but joy and approval. Let that sink in while I get some water. Did it sink in? As we've seen in chapter 3, John says that we are children of God. That means we have an audience with God, that he's not some distant being now, but he is close and familiar to us. And so we can go to, we can go to him whenever we want with boldness, because he's our father and we are his children. It's like the example Jeremy's used in the past about the child of the president of the United States, how he views and addresses the president is a lot different than how we view and address the president because he's not worried about the right things to say or if he's dressed up enough. It's his father. He has a confidence and relationship with him that we don't have. And while our identity in Christ does give us boldness before God, Satan makes it his aim to undermine that and condemn your soul. That's why he's called the accuser because he brings accusations against you to make you doubt your identity in Christ. See, often we'll come alongside you and be like, wow, you really did that? How long have you been struggling with this? You should be ashamed of yourself. And we, when we start listening to that, we start to believe that God does get angry with us and disappointed in us. And I know that I struggle with this personally a lot. I often feel like God looks at me the same way I can look at my sons sometimes. <laughs> like, man, I love y'all. Get your acts together. Stop missing the toilet or perish. Like, but when we start to think and feel that way about God, then our, we lose that boldness and we start to run away from him. If you've ever sinned and then avoided God for a while uh, because you're embarrassed or ashamed, then you're doubting this part of your identity. And then crazy th thoughts start coming in, like, I'm going to give it some time, kind of clean up my act, and then I'll come back around when things kind of settle down. But that is not our identity, because our works don't earn that status as a child of God. It's Jesus' works that earn that status for us. So how do we remind ourselves of where our soul stands before God? How do we get that boldness back if you've lost it. 
The first step is to recognize your sin and repent of it. When we talk of repentance, we talk of doing a 180, of you're looking at your sin and then you turn from it and turn back towards God. So recognize your sin and repent and he will forgive you. And trust that your status as a child of God isn't in jeopardy. That your sin doesn't destroy your identity and it doesn't change how God views you. But on our side of things, it does affect our relationship with God. So that is why we need to acknowledge our sin and turn from it. And so when we see the sin and turn from it, we know that it's the Holy Spirit at work within us that's working to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. And like John says in verse 18, perfect love casts out fear. And we know now that the Spirit is that perfect love that is working within us that casts out that fear to draw us closer to our Father. Let's move on to the final point. Our identity in Christ is evidenced by our love for people. I'm going to look at 19 through 21 again. We love God because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John is going back again to the social test. He's just kind of coming at it from a slightly different angle. And he's used the social test multiple times and stated them in slightly different ways. And that should tell us a couple of things. One, that this idea of loving God and people is extremely important. And two, that we should be wrestling with this idea until we understand it as much as we can. Because it's easy to hear on the surface, love God, love people, and you think, yeah, I love God. I mean, he saved me. We're cool. I can do that. And then love people, and you think of the people you already love, and you're like, yeah, I'm doing a pretty good job of that. But then when John states it this way, anyone who says they love God and hates his brother is a liar. And that's a little bit harder to stomach. And we might tend to want to downplay that, like, I'm not actively hating someone right now. Like, at this moment, I'm not seething towards somebody. So I'm good, right? But to better really understand what John's getting at, let's look at love and hate again. Like I mentioned earlier, love is wanting good and wanting life for somebody. But love is also active in pursuing others. We see in verse 19, John says, we love because he first loved us. That means that while we were still in rebellion against God, while we still hated him, that he loved us He pursued us, and he saved us from death. And that's the type of love that we are to have for one another, a self-sacrificing, life-producing love. And when we don't love people in this way, what John is saying is then we hate people. Because hate is ultimately rooted in the thought of, I want you to die. And that can't that, and that can display itself in a number of different ways. I think what normally comes to mind is we think of being angry and hating someone, like actively loathing them. But you can also hate people through indifference. So when someone says the phrase, that person's dead to me, that is the epitome of hatred because it's the exact opposite of what godly love is. When you hate someone, you aren't pursuing them and you're not wanting spiritual life and transformation for them. And so, if we hate people in this way, 
What John is telling us in no uncertain terms is that your identity is not in Christ. Now, there's a lot that goes into this, and this is why we have gospel community groups, so you can unpack this further. But I do want to make a distinction here. We are not perfect, and we never will be perfect. And there will be times that we hate our brother because we're still sinful people. And when this happens, that does not negate our identity in Christ. Back in in chapter 3, remember when John said, no one who abides in God keeps on sinning. Well, he's getting to this idea of habitual, unrepentant sin. And in the same way, John is saying, if you hate someone habitually, if you don't repent when presented with the gospel truths of love and forgiveness for one another, then it is impossible to love God because God's love is not in you. You have not experienced God's love because you cannot show that same love to others. And that is why our identity in Christ is evidenced by our love for people. Because when you're saved by Jesus, you will love others through pursuing and desiring life for them. And John ends the chapter with a command from God, we must love our brother. And we can only obey that command because God first loved us and gave us his spirit. So how do we love people? How do we pursue and desire life for people today? This can manifest itself in a lot of ways. I'll give you a few. I think the main way is to pray for people. And I don't mean pray generally for people, like the section that is scared of small kids, you know, God give them love and grace, or the section that has kids, like pray for them because, I mean, look at them. Uh, but ask the Spirit to save those who are lost, but also ask the Spirit to grow and mature your brothers and sisters in Christ. But what that means is you have to know them because you have to know them to be able to pray specifically for them. And so the second way is to invite people. Invite people into your homes. Invite people into reading groups, into GCs. Invite them to church so that they can be exposed to the truth, but so that they can also experience God's love through the people of God. And the third one is to build deeper relationships with people inside the church and outside the church. Because the stronger that your relationship is with someone, the more opportunities you have to love them and to point them to Christ. And this, these three points, this isn't a list where you can just pick one and check it off and say, good, I love people for the week, I'm done. Uh, this is something that we should, be, we should be doing all of these things continually as we live our lives. We should be a church who is known for pursuing each other and for pursuing the lost. Because if we love God, we will love one another. Like Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in a minute, the band's going to come up by a minute, I mean now, and lead us in a time of worship through song. And as you respond to the me- message, ask the Spirit in the, to reveal to you the areas where your identity in Christ is weak or wavering. And maybe you aren't sure where you stand with God. So ask the Spirit to reveal that to you and then respond in faith. But let us trust that God is a good and faithful Father who generously gives to those who ask. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you loved us 
to give us, to give us spiritual life. Father, I pray that your spirit will move, that he will open our eyes uh, to see your truth and to see your love. Help us to respond and love you and to become more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.